Do you, I, I feel like these, whenever I hear stuff like this, I'm like, wow, like the entire credit system is literally just a scam. And it's like totally a myth that, you know, <laughs> that all the, all the metrics that we use to decide whether people are credit worthy or not. Do you, how, do you agree with that? <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome back to I'm the Villain. Today we are talking about financial inclusion with Shrey, who you heard from three episodes ago. And I I don't feel like we don't even really need to introduce you again because I feel like people remember. So let's just jump right into it. So I don't know. I mean, like financial inclusion is such, it's like kind of, it, it feels very jargony. So like Shrey, how would you like, just as a summary, define financial inclusion? There are systems in our economies that enable people to engage with the financial markets and the financial inclusion movement works to help the most vulnerable among us engage in those systems. Damn. <laughs> that was a very good definition, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like a dictionary definition. The only, okay, so the most tangible example I can think of of what you just described is like, for example, in D.C., like we, there used to be all these, you know, businesses like Sweet Green and stuff that would only take card, and then DC instituted some legislation to like be like, no, yeah, you have to take cash because people, there are people without card, <laughs> they just can't, that can't go to your, you know, patronize your business. Exactly. No, that's definitely a part of it. Like the fact that like cash is still king for a large portion of the American population. Like it's definitely decreasing. People are more engaging with like digital methods of exchanging money like Menmo and uh, like having a bank card. But like the fact that you're able to use cash is like incredibly important, making things like more inclusive for people to be able to engage in the economy. Yeah. And it's like a lot of people are like, hella underbanked. And I, I often, as someone that like has pretty much transitioned entirely to card, I often forget that. Right. Yeah. And I feel like I think of cash as like an inconvenience almost like I don't carry around a wallet anymore because like, you know, all my, all my cards are on the back of my phone. Cause I'm a little fuck. And, um, and I'm like, and if someone gave me cash, I wouldn't know what to do with it. So I feel like I'm often removed from that world. Shrey, do you carry cash? Uh, I carry like a $20 bill with me in case I need it swag <laughs> how often do you ever have to use it uh never like it's like if i if i'm like stuck somewhere with a cat like someone needs a cab and the cab only takes cash then i have a 20 dollars bill to get somewhere that's that's why i have it yeah whenever i would visit you in boston we would need to carry cash you're right you know we did need cash then that was that was a uh, like four years ago though so like these have definitely changed up their system <laughs> <laughs> um so i'd love to like talk about and connect the dots between, like, I guess just talk about why it's important for people, even, like, low-income people, to be able to participate in, like, economic activities, you know? Because I feel like, and, like, talk about what that looks like for someone that might not have a ton of money, you know? Yeah, 
and and there's like there's two ways to have this conversation like first is in like the domestic u.s context and the the other is in like the global like international context and like when you talk about like international financial inclusion like it's things that we take for granted on a daily basis like the ability to exchange money with an individual right like fundamentally the ability to engage in commerce like that's what the financial inclusion used to like engage people in it's like yeah you can use your mobile phone to access this fintech app that lets you exchange a some currency amount with another individual and participate in trade right but like when you look at the domestic context it really gets into this idea of you know like how do we get people to have access to the same financial institutions that those with greater means have access to on a daily basis and not just uh like not just uh like banking and the ability to have like a checking account or a savings account, but also like access to credit and access to financing to help you achieve whatever dreams it is that you aspire to. Yeah. Why? So can we go into a little bit more why that's important? Because I feel like, for example, like a, a business like Sweetgreen could very easily say, well, these like, we know the demographics of people who shop here. Why should we give a shit if, cause like these people are not shopping here anyway. Right. Yeah. I don't know. It strikes me as, and maybe Shrey can chime in on this, but it strikes me as like not something like it's probably good for businesses like in general to have, or it's good for the economy as a whole to have more more people participating in it. But this feels like something that's good for like more so on the consumer end than on the, on the supplier end. If that makes sense. It's, it's definitely more of a consumer side thing. And I think like it's important to recognize that when it comes to like having a customer base, like it's not just the people who you expect to come into the business, but people who can participate in that business itself. Right. Like, so whether or not it like definitely Sweet Green has its core demographic for a while, I uh, was on a project with Sweet Green uh, where we would look at their like demographic indicators and try to find like location based data that would influence like their marketing schemes. And like they definitely cater to more of a high income demographic but you want to be able to have people and like which is why i think it's great that dc did this like i think it's great to have policies in place to let people know that regardless of whether or not you have a bank account you're able to engage in the economy and engage in businesses and their enterprises so like what is the i mean i the, i really like the example of there was like um you know that link that you sent us of you know bank of america right, was like, okay, we're going to get rid of this account, like all of our accounts that don't charge any fees, right, and like stuff like that, right? Yeah. Like, I guess, could you talk more about like those types, like the like the kinds of effects that like those types of things have? I mean, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if it's obvious to people, you know? So like one of the things that uh, they talk about is like there's like 68 million people that are financially underserved in America. They spend an average of like $100 per month per person on financial services. And that comes in the form of fees, transaction costs. Uh, and it's sort of like disproportionate to people that don't have as like greater amounts of wealth or don't have as much income uh, as people that are better off. Right. And like when Bank of America gets rid of these like e-banking accounts that had no fees, uh, they're making it harder for people to engage with the banking system, harder to have a checkbook, harder to have a debit card, harder to be able to interact, you know, pay your, uh, you know, rent or utilities online because you don't have an account to do that through. Right. And so I, I think that 
it's like it's incredibly important uh, when you when you're talking about the ability of individuals to engage in the institutions that we have in our society to have the ability to engage in commerce with them. And banks are the intermediaries for that. Yeah. It's almost, it's almost, but like, I guess, you know, Apple could be like, okay, well we're charging whatever a thousand dollars for our laptops. Right. And like, who are you to tell us like, you know, what to charge for that? Is there like in your mind, a reason why banking is like a different type of thing, a different type of product from just any kind of, cause like you could totally make an argument of like, look, we're in a pandemic right now. Everyone should have a right to have a computer and therefore we should force computer companies to, you know, have an affordable computer to allow low income people to have access into this, like now what is increasingly becoming kind of a human yeah. rights looking thing, right? Is banking like meaningfully different from that kind yeah. of argument? I know. No, I, go ahead, DeAndre. Uh, I know that you, as well. I know you're asking Shrey, but like, I feel like, um, you know, in kind of the times that we live in now, I feel like we're, um, we're at a time where we're sort of adding more things to the list of things that we classify as needs, you know, like needs to participate in society. I feel like a lot of people would classify like internet as a need and like, and like access to like a phone as a need in order to be able to prosper in society. I feel like I wouldn't, I, I feel like I would, I'm kind of leaning into the side of like the ability to access like banking operations and banking services, like it feels like a need to me, you know, like I feel like with anything like any kind of significant purchase or, or, or any like, um, you know, any like any like job like people wanted to um, you need like to give credit card information or you need to have credit or you need to, you know, if someone if someone gives you a check, obviously you can go and cash it. But like cashing check costs more like you, you have to pay a fee for your check cashing because it's not going into an account and things like that. So I don't know. Straight, what's your what's your take? Yeah, no, I, um, again, this is like global versus domestic perspective. Domestically, there's 7% of Americans in that households that lack access to a bank account, right? And like for them, like not having access to those financial services is a difference like between, you know, being able to pay your utilities on time or needing to send in a, needing to send in cash through an intermediary to pay those services, um, and when you look at internationally, it's like very, very obvious, especially those who work in developmental economics, that access to financial services is directly tied to an increase in income and increase in uh, the opportunities of people to make income off of the work that they do. So, um, I mean, like finance is this like abstract thing. I recognize that. But to me, it seems more and more that it should be a right in our society that you're able to access financial systems. And it makes services like a free banking account or an e-banking account like essential to the functioning of our society. So we basically need to start treating banking as being in the same category as housing, health care, food, whatever. Yeah, and it's, it's not just like, uh, it's not just like, the idea that you know banks make life easier but it's like really essential for people to be able to do things like build a savings right or uh you know build wealth or to pay off debts to have some avenue of financial like financial accessibility into markets that you're able to get uh when you have a bank account right and so i don't know like it's they're like 
half of Americans would say that they are like struggling financially in some way. It's like they're play- living paycheck to paycheck or they have, uh, you know, some, some excessive expense, like a student loan payment that they have to pay off and the ability to have a financial account to like process those payments through and to be able to track those things. is like a huge boon to them. Yeah. Like I'm, th- I'm trying to think of like the major systems that I've like partaken in like, for example, like financial aid or, you know, like buying a car and like, were those like, would I have even been able to engage with those systems if I didn't have like a bank account in my name or like my parents didn't have a bank account in their name or something like that? And I feel like the answer is probably mostly no, or at least that's, or at least it would be a lot more difficult to do so. Um, which I don't know. Yeah. I mean, like I would, like I said, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I feel like I would, I'm leaning into the idea of like banking services being, you know, a right for an American citizen. Yeah. Well, I mean, here's an example in the vein of what you were just talking about is like when I was working at Fannie Mae, there were all of these products that we were working on to try to verify, you know, people's incomes. Right. And, and their assets. Right. And like, you can't, you can't do that unless they give you a bank account. Right. And obviously like, you can't buy a house period if you're not, if you don't have a bank account, because literally like where is, you know, you can't really pay for house in cash, but yeah. like <laughs> there is like, we were trying to create these like systems to automate that process of checking their incomes and stuff like that. And then we were running into all of these, like just, there were such a vast diversity of the way that people get paid that I had not, I've never even thought of before having to like work on that project of like, okay, well like what about teachers who like get paid for the summer, like at the very beginning of the summer and like they have, and it looks like they're getting like a bonus or whatever. Or what about people who work in casinos and literally get paid in like tips, you know? (laughs) And it's like, there's so many of those weird situations and like so many of the, so much of like the issues that we were trying to work through is like, how much should we really create our system to cater to that? Because those, that's like less than 0.1% of the population. Right. And so all these systems are made to like kind of cater to like whatever, like whoever's in the majority, like the 99% of people who do have a bank account or do you know, have a normal kind of like direct deposit banking structure or whatever. Mm-hmm. And like, they're just not incentivized to care about that. Like 0.1% of people. Right. You were probably like not buying houses very much anyway. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that like after reviewing the thing that uh, like the fact sheet that Shrey sent us, it seems like, you know, even kind of like the percentages that you're throwing around to kind of spitball, you know, they're low, right? Like 7% of, of American people don't readily have access to a bank account. And that's like a, that's a lot, you know, mm-hmm. like there's like roughly 330 million people in America, which I learned because I wanted to be able to track COVID stats Mm-hmm. And um, and like one percent was like one of one percent of that is like what like thirty three million. So that times seven is like I don't know <laughs> a lot. Uh, it's like twenty one million people. Twenty one million people. Yeah, and and like it adds up, you know. And the idea that that many sort of that many people are not able to actively participate, um, in, you know, in financial services, um. And then, like, my mind automatically goes to, you know, what kinds of people are those people? Like, often, like, you know, those people are, um, if they don't have access to, my, to financial services, they probably don't have a lot of money in general, right? And, like, and then we start thinking about, like, cyclical poverty and how things kind of feed into each other in that way. 
Well, one thing that that, um, that our article was talking, talking about was like, you know, Venmo and how there's all of these like fintechs that are coming in and trying to like whatever, like shake things up and like target those unbanked people. What are your thoughts, Shrey, on like how effective those types of things are? Or are they these kind of like harebrained things that like kind of look good to get venture capital, but are not actually effective? You know, No, I think they're incredibly powerful, um, okay. especially when you look internationally in developing economies, the ability for a fintech company to say that uh, with a mobile phone contract, you can maintain some type of uh, a, an account and be able to exchange that with a text message. Like that's a, that's a really powerful thing for people that, you know, maybe live, you know, 50 50 75 miles away from a bank and want to be able to engage in commerce systems and i mean venmo is incredibly powerful uh you know not just for like millennials who are trying to pay you know their rent to the person that is like on the lease but for people that you know have those expenses that they're sharing with a household to be able to credit those to each other mm-hmm. but even like even a venmo requires access to a, like a credit or a debit card though right no no it doesn't i don't i don't connect any of my banking information or my card to venmo you just oh. have to have someone pay you first and then you have oh. the money in it right shit that blew my mind just now yeah fuck <laughs> <laughs> for you and then you and then you're just dealing in like imaginary venmo money yeah like someone like pays you money and then you can like send that to somebody else and like whatever damn yeah, yeah. Totally. That's yeah, I think it's like I think Venmo is like one of the most like important products that like PayPal has created, and a lot of banks tried to follow suit in that way. Like I think that a lot of banks got together and made an app called Zell, which is like trying <laughs> to be the Zell. You don't like Zell? <laughs> I, I don't really use it. <laughs> <laughs> My dad was like, "Hey, uh, hey, son, uh, I, I needed some money from him for some reason, like a couple of years ago." And he he was like, "Do you have Zell?" And I was like, "Dad, I don't have Zell." <laughs> and I don't know. I downloaded Zelle and it was terrible. I had such a bad time. Oh, really? It's never. I, I've never had a bad experience with it. I felt. I find it pretty easy to use. Yeah, I guess I was just like obviously aggressively comparing it to Venmo, who, which has a pretty good UI. Well, the thing I like about Zelle over Venmo is that Zelle doesn't publicize every single one of your transactions. Well, uh, Venmo's <laughs> trying to make it into a social media account, dude. <laughs> yeah, I know, but like, I bet there's a lot of people who are off put by that, right? Yeah, well, you can go to your settings and yeah, make, it make it private. Right? Yeah, totally, I totally. Your point. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I would love to talk about other ways that organizations are, you know, like trying to sort of mediate this gap. Like I know, Shrey, you worked at Kiva, and Kiva didn't it deal with more kind of like global financial inclusion. Yeah, they. So their whole thing is like uh, dreams are universal, but opportunity is not. And they try to create opportunity through uh, credit and credit challenge systems uh, by having people engage in low interest loans or 0% interest loans to microfinance organizations that then go out into the community. And uh, they operate in the U.S. They have a Kiva U.S. program where a uh, business in the U.S. can apply for a $10,000 loan uh, and get that 0% interest uh, to be able to scale their business and pay that over the course of a, of a year or two. Yeah. Is that is it mainly for – like are the loans mainly for people that like want to start a business or – Yeah, it's – it's definitely so internationally it can be anything from like uh, access to education or, um, you know, 
you know, getting more infrastructure in, in a region. But domestically, it's mostly used for uh, for small small to mid sized enterprises that want to scale their operations. And uh, I don't know. I don't know exactly what like the metric is for it, but uh, they've had an incredible amount of success uh, using a program of social underwriting, which is like instead of using a credit score to evaluate the the financial worthiness of an institution, uh, they use uh, people's networks and the the social systems that they engage with to under in the underwriting process, but it's something like 8,000 small business loan applications are turned down uh, every day by banks uh, due to a lack of quote unquote credit worthiness. And the Kiva us model was based on the idea that there are other things in life that can be used to gauge credit worthiness other than what your credit score is. Yeah. I have the little blurb here that I would love to read because I think it's really interesting. Yeah. Um, they say, um, Social underwriting has the potential to unlock capital for these entrepreneurs. This is how it works. Uh, Kiva Zip borrowers are required to invite 25 members for their personal network to lend to them first in order for their loan to be posted publicly on the website. By going through a, a private fundraising process, borrowers demonstrate their ability to market their business, prove that they have a trust network willing to lend them money, and, and inviting people they know increases the likelihood of repayment. The data supports the effectiveness of this social underwriting process as borrowers with more than 20 invited lenders average a 98% loan repayment rate compared to 88% for borrowers with zero invited lenders. And like, I just want to say like a 98% loan repayment rate for a 0% interest loan is hella impressive for a company that does not take credit scores into account. Yeah. Wow. And I, I was, I'm kind of like blown away by the zero invested lenders too. That's still 88%, right? Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't know. I have no idea kind of what the national, like, average is in terms of, like, you know, for a traditional loan that's underwritten with the credit score, what the, like, what the repayment rates are. Um, but, like, those numbers both sound high to me. I don't know. Do you, I, I feel like these, whenever I hear stuff like this, I'm like, wow, like the entire credit system is literally just a scam and it's like totally a myth that you know <laughs> all the all the metrics that we use to decide whether people are credit worthy or not do you do you agree with that yes yeah so i mean like when you go back to like the earliest stages of like economies being formed right it was all built on credit the idea that i'll bring you a bushel of apples and you can give me something in return later on right that's fundamentally how the economy was started before like even money came into play it's like systems of credit and like overwhelmingly it's shown that giving people access to credit and credit institutions makes it possible for them to scale their own enterprises and create income on their own. So, I mean, I definitely believe in the power of credit and the opportunity that credit has to offer. But do you think that the, like the, the credit system as it works today, where we have like these three all-knowing, all-powerful credit agencies <laughs> that have this black box file on every person in the world, <laughs> like, do you think that that is like, I... I really believe that that's something that's going to become obsolete within our lifetimes. Yeah. And, you know, I think there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of companies that exist that try to use uh, like social metrics or data on an individual to gather what their credit worthiness might be, especially for low income communities. Right. But I think the power of what Kiva does with social underwriting is that it's based on 
networks, right? Like if you have a community behind you supporting you, you can use that as your clout to say, you know, I'm going to pay back this role because I have a role in this community. But do you not think that that, like those other metrics, whatever metrics they may be, could not be equally like exclusionary in whatever, and you know, maybe in other ways, right? But there's also people who obviously like don't have networks and who don't have like all these other things, right? That they could be looking for. Yeah, absolutely. And so I studied at the Institute for Advanced Analytics at NC State, and we had like an entire like section of classes dedicated to the ethics of data science and how you develop uh, metrics for any sort of application. But we talked a lot about financial inclusion and how when you have a score of creditworthiness, especially like at a bank, right, when you're trying to decide whether or not to approve someone for a loan, if you're using a data-driven process for that, there's going to be implicit biases in the data that skew them towards a certain result. And if you're not conscious of those biases and you're not taking active steps to reduce them, then you're perpetuating a system of inequity in the financial markets. Damn, talk about it. <laughs> but <laughs> so the idea is that yes, any system like has that like has that potential for perpetuating that like the the inequity bias. But like, you know, hopefully companies or like organizations like Kiva or like CDFIs are trying to be conscious of that and work against it. Yeah, exactly. It feels like, um, like it feels like a really cool model for businesses, which is what it's intended for. Um, I think that it'd be really cool to see something like that for, you know, personal loans or like home loans or like other kinds of loans that are also like extremely prohibitive to, you know, or like if you can't get them, it's extremely prohibitive to like participation in society, you know? Yeah, I guess what is like the ideal way to approach this? I mean, not even thinking about the international context, but like the American context, like going back to that, like Apple example, right? Like, I think there would be a lot of pushback against people, you know, the U.S. being like, oh, okay, you know, we believe that access to a computer or being able to have a computer is like a human right. So we're going to pass some kind of regulation that says like you have to offer, you don't necessarily have to change the prices of all your products, but you have to offer uh, an accessible option, right? Like a computer that people can buy for like whatever, a hundred, like under a hundred dollars or something. Like I bet, I bet there would still be a lot of pushback against that, but what do you, I don't even know if that's like analogous to the kind of thing that you think is the ideal solution or not, but like, what, what are your thoughts on like how to look at it from like this God's eye view of a regulatory standpoint? I mean, I don't know if like, so I'm, I'm uh, like hard pressed to say, like I'm definitely a capitalist at heart, right? Like I think that <laughs> a lot of, uh, like a lot of the, the wealth that can generate in society comes from the virtues of capitalism. And I'm not sure always that regulation is the best way to go through it, but I think that there's definitely an opportunity for financial institutions to engage in socially beneficial commerce systems. Uh, like, uh, so there's this band called Aspiration, right? And they are all about uh, using the checking and savings account balances they have to invest in socially responsible avenues, right? Whether like that's, you know, divesting from uh, oil and gas uh, equities or like putting them into more socially conscious enterprises. And like to have, they, they do it all online. They have like an online banking system and they have like a, the ability for people to create an account for zero fees and, and go from there. And so like having access to those in like having a financial institution that gives access to those types of products is incredibly valuable, especially when they're engaging in a socially conscious way. So it's not really, it's not really like anyone needs to tell anyone to do anything. It's just sort of like, 
we should have more institutions like this that are catering to this demographic of people. But I think the issue, right, of like financial inclusion is that there's not a lot of institutions that just willingly decide to do that, right? Yeah, and that's definitely like a real problem for a lot of, especially large American banks, right, is that it's costly to do uh, financial, financial, like, commerce with people who are in poor and excluded communities, right? Like, it takes a greater level of engagement. You have to go farther out of your way. Um, you know, in, you know, sub-Saharan Africa, that means, like, engaging with individuals that live away from uh, solid infrastructure or, a bit, like, far away from any sort of institution that would be able to hand them the actual money that they need. But in the U.S., that manifests itself in the same way, saying like rural communities that live in underbanked areas, right, where uh, there aren't like you have a bank desert of some sorts uh, to you know prevent people from being able to engage those institutions. So I, I, I think that like as we go on in society, especially with the power of like fintech companies and the Internet, uh, I think that we're going to see more and more the opportunity for people that are in poor and excluded communities to engage in financial systems by companies to just see it as good business. Yeah. So you're, you think that like eventually as like, as it becomes, you know, as like these ideas become more and more kind of sewed, you think that companies will decide to, because it will, it makes sense for, you know, like financial reasons as opposed to like like the goodness of their heart or whatever. Yeah, exactly. So someone, but like someone always has to be the person to like, you know, do it like out of the goods of their heart. Like there have to be those organizations and I guess that's like, I don't know that like, that's the part for me where I'm like, I, you know, I don't think that I'm fundamentally like anti-capitalist or anti-socialist. I'm just like kind of floating somewhere in the middle. Um, But that's like, to me, like one of the things that like, I think capitalism just relies on someone like having a good heart and like taking a loss at some point in the, at some point in the road, which like sometimes happens, but I feel like it doesn't always happen, you know? Um, I think that there's like, there are people that are definitely trying to reimagine the system. So there's this, uh, like, there's obviously a clear gender gap in finance where overwhelmingly uh, women who lead ventures find it harder to access, uh, have access to financial services than, than men would. And there's this organization called CEO, and their whole idea is to use a philosophy of like radical generosity is what they call it to basically just create a new system of finance where women led ventures work hand in hand with a network of women activators to grow and scale their enterprises. Right. So uh, you have, you know, a network of individuals who have contributed $1,100 a piece into a central fund. And that fund goes to ventures that have been selected through an application process. And then they can rely on, uh, the women in that network to have access to, you know, whatever connections they need, whatever resources they need. And a lot, most of the ventures that I've seen um, in the CEO program have seen triple digit growth with this reimagined system of, of uh, financial well-being. Right. So if it's like, it's like the idea that um some force, whether it be like human ingenuity or capitalism, like incentivizes creativity, right? And like people all come up with these like really kind of like creative or cool ways to make businesses that are both inclusive and like, you know, can see growth and like real profit. 
I mean, I guess, I mean, we are basically in a time when uh, there's a lot more people who, I think this is an opportunity where consumers can have an impact normatively, where like we are kind of living in a time where people are more likely to shop somewhere, you know, that has some kind of, you know, ethical mission. There's like so many companies that have really capitalized on that, like, you know, Tom's where they're like, oh, you buy our shoes, we'll give shoes to some, you know, poor person who can't afford shoes, like that kind of thing. I don't know if that's necessarily like a, like, whether that's like a fad and maybe that'll end or if that's something that's going to just like keep trending upwards. But like, if there were more people who were like, Oh, you know, if X, Y, Z bank decides to have a program that like, you know, allows, you know, more accessible banking, I'm more likely to bank there. I think that's the thing that would definitely like promote more of those types of programs. Yeah. And I think that like, I think that like businesses are slowly starting to see that, you know, like, being like social entrepreneurship is like kind of like sexy and trendy and like lucrative amongst our generation. Um, and like, you know, who, who's to say if like, that's like, if that trend's going to continue, but I don't see why it wouldn't, you know? Cause like we are really leveraging, you know, there are more vegan products on the market. There are more, you know, of these, like, you know, right now, well, this like, you know, master dumpster fire we're going through, there are more people being like, let's support black owned businesses and like that kind of thing. Right. Yeah. I don't know. Trade is there are there other any points are there any other points that you want to make? Um I think I want to talk a little bit about uh like payday loans and the role of people that live paycheck to paycheck and their reliance on these high interest types of loans to get through their uh daily lives. Oh yeah, are those like the like whenever I see an ad on like YouTube or on Instagram for people that are like Man, I need like, you know, I can act, like with this app, I can access my paycheck, you know, two days before. I, like, are those just like fancy, fancified payday loans? Yeah. So this is like a really cool, I'm going to say it's cool. It's a really cool like market that's engaging in uh, like financial systems where you have uh, intermediaries that are saying that you like you have an individual that has, you know, work the hours that they're going to work and they've earned those wages, but they're not going to get paid those wages until they're biweekly or monthly paycheck. So you have this intermediary that's going to say, we'll forward that payment to you and get that money to you within you know minutes of earning that wages as opposed to having to wait for a paycheck. And so the alternative would be like, you know, before this existed, it would be to, you know, go to a uh, payday loan vendor and, you know, say, hey, I want, you know, X amount of dollars to pay for my rent or my utilities or my food. And then once you get paid two weeks later, you pay that loan back. But typically those loans come at exorbitant interest rates. Like we're talking like, you know, $30 for $1,000 and like greater than that, right? Like it's like exceptionally like expensive to have these types of loans available. Uh, so I... I, I think that this is like, you know, so the example I give of like a FlexPay at SAP, right? And they are able to integrate with companies that use SAP systems to uh, track their wages and their hours. So like, this is like a startup within SAP that they're sort of trying to grow and make available to people that use SAP systems. And I think it's a really powerful way to help sort of make it easier for people to get by in their day-to-day lives once they've earned wages but haven't necessarily been paid them. Yeah, so like trying to like depredatorize a pretty predatory lending space. 
Yeah, exactly. I think that's like a, I, I find that concept to be to be really, really cool. You know, like having your money available as you earn it. Like it feels like something that just like intuitively makes sense. And as someone that has kind of like struggled with, you know, like struggled with well, just generally not having a lot of money, but, you know, struggling with like having a very, very kind of working um, like, you know, hourly wage working job, like when I was working at Chipotle and like having to struggle up until, you know, that like the Friday that I get paid, right? Like I, w- I would have been, I think, really excited at the option to be able to access that money like there when I needed it instead of having to just like slum it for a week or whatever, you know? Yeah, and it's something like 20% of people that have a bank account also use financial services associated, associated with like uh, the financially excluded, like payday loans. So this is definitely like a valuable opportunity for people to engage with financial systems. Wait, I think I'm missing something. Is it is it considered not predatory because they're just are they not charging any interest or are they just charging really low interest or how are they you know typically doing typically that? this is a service that an employer provides to the employees. So as a part of being employed with uh, Chipotle, uh, you would be able to in, like they have some sort of company policy that allows you to engage with FlexPay that lets you get access to your uh, money that you have already earned but have not yet been paid ahead of time. Yeah, oh, mostly. The, the company would need to pay FlexPay to provide that service, right? Yes, yes. There would be some fee there. So what would what would be the company's incentive to do so besides uh, like just being a better place to work? Yeah, no. I mean, it's like fundamentally it improves the ability of like workers to come into the workplace, right? Like especially when most of these payments go like especially when like, I think I don't, I don't know. It's like 80 percent or something like that. Uh, maybe 70% of like high interest payday loans are used to cover like a recurring expense. Right. So like, it's definitely like immediate needs that these wages are being used for. And uh, I think there's like a strong incentive for companies to be able to provide welfare for their employees in that way. Yeah. And I think that like, there's a lot of kind of data behind the idea that like, you know, high employee satisfaction leads to like more productive workers and like, you know, like a long-term kind of long game capitalist gain in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, you could also just make the argument that that's the way the system should have always been working because <laughs> for a company to wait for two weeks to, to pay you is like, they're making interest on that money the entire time. They're just having it sit in their own bank account instead of your bank account. Right. Mm, like, like the money that they would have, like that they're going to pay you is garnering interest in the company's bank right. account. Yeah, as opposed to your own. Yeah, I guess. Right? Because, like, that's, like, the, the issue that my dad always has with the fact that the government withholds your taxes instead of, like, paying the taxes on tax day is that, like, you could have technically been making interest on that money had you just kept it in your account the entire time, right? Yeah. Yeah. Damn, that's some next-level shit right there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's how you can tell I'm just starting to engage with, with like, the financial system because I don't even think in that way yet, you know? Well, I mean, I, it's like such a nominal amount of money because interest rates are like on your bank account is often so low. But like it is it's not nothing. Right. It's not nothing. I, yeah. I started a savings account um, for the first time in a long time, a couple of months ago and like got my first penny in interest. And I was like, oh, that's cute. <laughs> you know, it felt nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> OK, well, yeah, no, I. um 
I would, I feel like I would fucking engage with like, I would, I would feel more attracted to a company that, you know, were like, if they were like, oh yeah, well, you know, we pay you at the end of every workday. You can just get like, you know, you get like whatever X amount of dollars at the end of every workday instead of paying you bi-weekly. Like that would be wild. This is one of those norms that like we're so used to as being the norm that we don't question it very much. But like, it is kind of like, why, if I made this money, why do I not have it? Right. Why do I have to wait so long to get it? Yeah. Right. And when I, like when you start a job, why do you have to wait like an, a month to get paid for the first time or whatever, you know? Yeah. Especially because there's other, like in every type of, you know, relationship, right? Where there's some kind of power dynamic. It's always that case. Like, you know, landlords get paid in advance, right? You pay a month, you know, for the month before you actually live, like, you know, are living it, right? Or like, you, you know, consuming your house, right? <laughs> like, why isn't, why isn't your employer paying you up front for the, you know, for the work that you have not done yet, right? Mm, that's a step farther, paying someone up front for the money I haven't done yet. Yeah, but like, that's like totally normal in some industries where you're like, you know, freelancers do that all the time, right? Yeah, fair enough. It's just like not something that we have ever thought as, of, of like as accessible for, you know, other kinds of workers. Yeah, there's like so many options out there that we literally don't even see as possible, but could like totally be viable if we just weren't like so set into the norms that we have now. I think, Trey, we asked you this last time. I'll ask you again. Is there anything that you like, you know, want people to plug or want people or are you, are you, is there anything that you want to plug or that you want people to follow or whatever? Uh, yeah. I just want to say that Black Lives Matter. And Hell yeah, we'll brother. Get to, <laughs> we'll get back to fighting for financial inclusion another day. But today, if you have a dollar, donate it to the NAACP, the ACLU, the Southern Poverty Law Center, Greenlining, and Black Lives Matter and know that yeah. we're here and we're with you. Yeah, and bail bonds and all that shit for places that have cash bail um, to make sure that people can continue to fight the good fight. Dude, I will say that's another like literal like financial inclusion thing, right? That has been, I think, a huge, like incredibly good innovation. There's an entire like realm of the conversation that we didn't engage in today where where we're like the the fact that you have to pay a bail bond to get out of jail when you're presumably like considered innocent by the law right and like the you go to a bail bondsman right to 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 get that and you have you're tied to the 10% whatever rate it is on that bail to pay to them even if you're like released after the fact like that is an entire realm of financial inclusion and the circle of poverty that exists in America today that um I guess we'll have to save for a later episode. Bail bonds are illegal in just about every country in the world, except for the United States and the Philippines. So. (laughs) And that's a. I did not know that. That's a government we want to be like. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. Bail bonds are fucking wild just as a concept. Okay. Um, Well, uh, I'll do, I'll do the, the actual outro real quick. Um, As always, if you heard anything you liked, anything you hated or anything, um, that made you think if you learned anything, if you really like Shrey or you really hate us, let us know at I'm the villain pod. Um, that's our Twitter. That's our Gmail. And that's our Instagram. Uh, otherwise, bye.